So we're going to continue on in 1 Peter uh, tonight, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. Let me reorient us a little bit to the passage since uh, y'all have slept since then for sure, and some of you have been in the mountains and beaches and other things. So what's happened is uh, Peter has written this letter to a, a group of Christians in the early church in about 60 to 65 AD. This was some 30 years after Jesus uh, died and was resurrected and all these things. So it's a young church. And it was in an area that was largely unchurched. I mean, it was not like a church plant in Tulsa. It would be more like a church plant in the middle of New York City or something, someplace you think of as being far less churched or uh, culturally Christian, you could say. And so he's writing these people and he's trying to encourage them. He's giving them all sorts of uh, reasons why they should be encouraged in the faith. And, and he's um, encouraging them to stand up amidst trial and persecution and suffering of all sorts. And he is, um, he's had to tell them some very specific things on how to live within certain social structures like family and with the government and their workplace and all of this. And we come to a little bit of a different passage tonight. He takes, um, kind of gets, begins to speak to them as people who are just, who have just been really converted. People who are just coming to know Jesus the first time and he's, he's kind of reminding them of, of where they were in their old life. And then he's putting up and holding up for them a picture of their new life in Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage. And I'm going to uh, pray for a minute. And then we'll um, look, at these, uh, look at it together and see a few things about it. So chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, First uh, Peter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves at the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me if you would. God in heaven, we pray that you would come and speak to us tonight. That you would open our ears and our hearts to receive uh, this, your word, which has the power to divide us, Father. To divide soul from spirit, bone from marrow, to pierce the very inworking of our heart. And we would ask that you would do that. You'd show us Jesus. And that he would become more beautiful tonight than he has ever been before. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I mentioned that, that we were in Chicago last week. We had the opportunity, we worked through a ministry called Sunshine Gospel Ministries, and they were 
right in the middle of this uh, neighborhood called Woodlawn Neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. And they were deeply embedded in that neighborhood and had a lot of connections to different pastors uh, therein. And uh, we met numerous pastors, uh, oh gosh, four or so I know that we worked directly with. Three of them, as, as we talked with them, or as, as I talked with them individually, or as they talked to us at night, throughout uh, their story, they kept saying something that I thought was, was really phenomenal and, and kind of challenged me in a strange way. What they do is, in the midst of these communities, <clears throat> they would see people come to Jesus. They would see people receive this new life by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And, and for many of these people, it, it meant their lives looked drastically different. That they, would, um, that they would have to get rid of these old kind of sin patterns. And, and Jesus would, would come and meet them there and help them through that. But inevitably, that's hard. I mean, if you've ever had a friend or maybe you yourself have come from... I'm not going to say a wild lifestyle, but a lifestyle that is, that is not what you would think of as being in order or in line with Scripture. There's just a lot of stuff that has to take place, and it's a, a messy and complicated process. But three of these pastors, a guy named Joel, and a guy named Brian, and another guy named Brad, talked about how people who they had ministered to now live with them. Some of them had bought um, houses that they would make an efficiency apartment on the top floor, maybe two of them, so that they could bring people in and offer them low or affordable housing so they'd get, their feet, get back on their feet. And some of them, even Brian, uh, one of the guys who spoke to us, another pastor in a different part of Chicago, said that he had, God, I don't know how many people he said that they had living with them, but a lot of people from his church and their congregation that would just come and live with them. Now, the reason that that was shocking to me, and the reason why it wasn't so shocking, the reason why it was shocking is that I began to feel my own selfishness. It's like, man, that would be really inconvenient. That would be really hard. That would not allow me to have as much kind of private time as I would want in my own home. So that was convicting, and that's good. In another way, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Because if we know anything from Scripture about the gospel and the power of what happens when people um, begin to trust in Jesus, it's that Jesus calls us into life with other people. That He brings us into community with others because the Christian life, not only is it not supposed to be lived in isolation, it, I would think it would be almost impossible to live it in isolation because we need other people. We need others. We are created for relationships, encouraging relationships, relationships that build us up and where we can be challenged in that. And so as I listen to these pastors talk about having all these people with them, it made sense because people were just getting back on their feet and they needed other people around them to live with them and to encourage them and all of this. I think as, um, as we look at this passage, there's a couple things I want us to see. But the big thrust of what I want us to see tonight is that when someone believes the gospel... When someone begins to trust in Jesus, or for some of you who may have trusted in Jesus for a long time, you become united to Him. Right? That you become, you kind of join yourself to Him. And your identity is found in Him. And when that happens, when we get that, that new life in Christ, then something drastically changes about us. That we move from this life that is centered on me and fulfilling my own desires and kind of going after my own selfish thoughts and ambitions without regard for what other people think to this life of living with other people. 
and of living in relationship and community with other people. And in this passage tonight, I want us to see, we're going to draw, we're going to draw a contrast here between an old life and a new life in Christ. And the, way that I, the reason I'm going to do this is I don't pretend to think that all of you um, are Christians here tonight. And so your old life, what I'm calling old life, may be your present life. And that's okay. I'm doing it because this is kind of how Peter sets up the, the, the passage for us. And so the old life is simply, um, if you're a Christian, this is what you were. What you once were. And we'll see what, um, what Peter means by that. So first we're going to see one of the problems with the old life. One of the problems, and Peter says in verse 1, that the problem with the old way of living, before you come to know Jesus, the thing that is our root problem is that we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. I'm going to reread verse 1. It says, since therefore Christ suffered, and that word really means that he died. It wasn't an ongoing suffering, that Christ suffered and died. It was a kind of once and for all finished act when he died on the cross. So since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, some people would read this verse, and you may even uh, have read it and, and thought, does that mean that I shouldn't be sinning anymore? That all of a sudden, if I believe in Jesus, the sin vanishes? No, it doesn't mean that, because it's drawing this parallel between the life and death of Jesus and our own life and death. Jesus himself had no sin, but this, Peter is talking about it as if Jesus had sin, and we'll see why that is. And so what it means then for Jesus to suffer in the flesh and to die is this. That when Jesus went up on the cross, all of humanity's sin went upon him. The sins of the elect people went upon Jesus. And so when he died, when he cried out from the cross, it is finished... That meant that the sin of all the elect people, all the chosen people who would believe in Him, that that sin was paid. That it was finished. There was no more punishment for that sin. And so when he looks at, when Peter looks, or more likely writes, to these people and says that whoever believes in Him has ceased from sin, what he is saying is that your enslavement to sin is no more. That though you and I, if you're a Christian here, though we have sins in our life, though we still continue to commit sin, it does not hold the same power over us. We aren't enslaved to it like a a slave is to a master. It is present, yes, but we are not enslaved to it. Let me think about it like this. Uh, Two illustrations. One, I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, and um, he was talking to me about a relationship that he had been in. And he thought he really had done things well and he had done things right. And the girl broke up with him. And it was very hard for this guy. He really struggled to get through this breakup uh, with this girl. And he struggled. What he really struggled with was, was not being angry at her. Because he had done things right. He had thought he really had, had kind of done the right things at the right times and said the right things and not moved too fast and... And tried to respect her in many ways. And so he was angry at her and and had a really hard time getting over it. Then, I don't know if it came out of nowhere or what, but one day as he was thinking about this relationship like he did often, he realized he was not as innocent in this as he thought he was. 
that he actually realized that he had loved the idea of him being a good boyfriend and kind of doing all these right things more than he had actually sought to love the person and to do what maybe she needed him to do. And so he was loving this idea of him rather than loving her. But what happened is when he realized this, and he realized that he had some sin involved in this also, is he confessed it to God. And when he realized that, when it came open, when the sin came to light, the power was gone. He could move on. It's as if the sin no longer enslaved him. Let me look at it this way. Right before spring break, I had a generous donor who offered uh, to buy me an iPad. And so I had taken Sarah and the girls to the airport. And for some reason, Brady thought he wanted to, he wanted to go to the Apple store with me to wait, wait in line for the new iPad to come out. And so we went to the Apple store and we're sitting outside. I, I thought it was going to be like 200 people deep. And there were about 18 people ahead of us. <laughs> so it wasn't quite the hype, I thought. But anyway, we're sitting out there and we're talking and overhearing lots of bizarre conversations. And then they, so we're sitting outside the mall, and then they came and unlocked the doors to the mall, so then we got to go inside and wait for the last two hours. Well, it was really, from that point on, it got weird, because I don't know if you've ever been applauded or clapped at when you were shopping, but as we opened the doors of the mall, and as they paraded us inside, it was like a spirit line of Apple workers, and they were clapping at us, and like, yay, you did it. And so that, and so that, felt, that felt weird, right? That felt kind of weird, but it didn't end there, because then we got to go wait right outside the Apple store, and they came and offered us, like, water and, and d- donuts, not cookies, donuts and stuff like that. And then at 8 o'clock, when they opened the doors, the line, like the spirit line, showed up again. And they were clapping for us and like doing some artificial celebration and all that stuff. And they would come and greet you and like personally usher you back into the back room, you know, where they gave you your iPad and you walked up and paid for it. Well, it, it was the whole thing was weird. But especially it got me whenever I, the guy was ushering me to the back and I stopped on the way back there. And played with this thing that I was about to spend $500 buying. Like, just played with the new, like, kind of was messing with it. And the guy was standing right over my shoulder, and I could feel his ire. He was so mad. Because he's like, dude, you waited for three hours. You're going to buy this. Just go buy it already. And I wanted to play with it. I wanted, and I kind of wanted to make him mad. Um, <laughs> and so I just did it. And I was standing there, and I could feel it. After, I didn't, I didn't last long. After a couple minutes, I was like, okay, I'm giving in. I'm going back. So I did it, and then on the way out, people were clapping at me again. And I don't know what happened there. I really don't. But I was walking out with Brady, and I said, I just, I feel like I just lost. Like, I just was a product of this game, and I'm the loser in it. Like, I'm the consumer extraordinaire, and I just kind of felt dirty. Right? I walked out, and I was just like, I've just been had. Well, right now I'm realizing that I told that illustration at the wrong point, so that's fun. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, we'll go with it. <laughs> the dirtiness of sin, the dirtiness of how I felt after that Apple store, is like what happens when you realize the dirtiness of sin. When you realize your enslavement to sin has you, you wonder, what am I supposed to do? What can I do now? Okay, so there's the problem with the old life is enslavement to sin. But there's also a product of the old life, of what this life gives us. And what is it? 
Well, it's you just live for yourself. You're just living for yourself at every turn. In verse 3, I'm just going to reread it. He kind of lists this uh, not-so-fun list of things to read, but he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And when he says Gentiles, he's just saying, for what the unbelieving people want to do, for, for the people who are not Jesus' followers. He's saying this is all, for the people who are Jesus' followers, this is in your past. But for those who aren't, he lists off these things. He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's looking at this and saying, this is what it is like to live outside of Jesus Christ. It's just all of these things, which if you look at them, it really is just self-indulgence. It is seeking one pleasure after another. And one kind of temporal, passionate high after another. And you know, when you read this list, you kind of look at it and think, man, that was written 2,000 years ago? What about yesterday? I mean, this stuff sounds like the stuff going on in our day and age. And that's because the human condition is really no different. The problem is no different. The product is no different. It's that sin enslaves us. It has us. And it takes us to this place where we just live for ourselves. That's what it gives us. Our life is marked by consumption at every turn. Whether that's consumption of, of substances maybe. Drink or, or drugs or, or money or something like that. Or maybe it's just consumption of the people around you. Of rather than loving people and giving yourself to people, you use people and you consume them. You devour them to your own ends to make you feel better about yourself. Or to prop yourself up, maybe in a class or in front of some people. Whatever it is. So what this life of enslavement to sin gets us is a life of selfishness. And a life that undoubtedly feels dirty. You feel like I felt when I walked out of the Apple store. I felt like I had been had. Like I had just lost at this game. And I know that if you're there or if you've been there... That it's not easy to get out of. And Peter recognizes as much. He says, no, it's not easy because not only is it the product, there's pressures of the old life that keep us in it. There's pressures all around us. And some of those he characterizes as mistreatment by others. And in verse 4 he goes down to say that the pressures are there. That when, when you try to get out of that old life, when you try to escape living in sin, That there are pressures there. And he says that it comes because the people who you used to live with, they, the Gentiles, he says, that they are going to be surprised when you don't join them. Some of you, that's very real. And you know what that feels like when you've made a conscious decision to step out of a situation you know you shouldn't be in. Now, for some of you, you remember what it was like when you took a whole lifestyle change from being a non-Christian to being a Christian. From some of you, it's just the daily or maybe once upon a time when you took the high road and you didn't give in. And the people around you are like, what? What are you doing? Why aren't you going to come do this with us anymore? What's the matter? You never have fun anymore. Why don't you just cut, cut out and relax some? Oh, you've, you're all religious now. You're all spiritual. He looked, Peter says that much. 
He says, you're going to be, they're going to be surprised. And not only that, they're going to malign you. They're going to verbally abuse you is what that word means. Or blaspheme. They're going to speak against you. Even things that aren't true. Some of you know exactly what that is. When you won't go out with the people you used to go out with. Or when you won't join the gossip at the fraternity of the sorority house that you used to just give into without even thinking about it. Some of you, it may be as subtle and as simple as not texting the guy or the girl back who you kind of know you shouldn't have continued to text with and kept the relationship going for too long. And they say, what's the matter? Where, where are you? You know, 20 times in a row when you don't respond. You feel it. People malign us. They are surprised when we don't keep on with them. Look, again, I want us to see in this passage, the Bible is not something that is totally irrelevant to our lives and is out of touch with where we are, that is out of touch with our reality. Peter is saying something that is directly applicable to us. Is that when you leave the old life, when you seek to put sin to death, not only is the evil one going to berate you, but those around you are going to call you back and say, no, come back. Or they're going to make fun of you. No, don't be so stupid. Don't be so weak. Don't be so foolish. Oh, now you have your Christian friends. Peter gets that. So there are pressures there. But you see, the old life leads to one great and final predicament. Is that there is a coming judgment of Jesus. That if you... If anyone refuses to leave that old way of living and just continues in the sin habitually and never makes a break from it, that there is something that is coming that is... It's going to be quite a predicament. Verse 5 says, But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But the judgment by Jesus is not going to be a happy day or good news for those who continue to live in sin and who never turn from it. It will be quite a predicament. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that judgment is good news. It is a beautiful thing. It's terrifying, yes, in the sense that we don't know a lot about it and that the idea of judgment is terrifying in of itself, but it will be beautiful in the fact that God is going to expose all of the wrong in this world and call it for what it is. And He's going to call it wrong. And He's going to call it evil and injustice and sinful and ugly. And that's going to be laid open in God who will just who will judge justly, will do just that. And so it will be beautiful. as a just judgment will finally be carried out in our land and around the world. In Chicago, we learned a lot about, as I mentioned, about poverty and the many different causes of poverty. And there's more than just material poverty. There's spiritual poverty and there's um, relational poverty and all these things. And one of the things that they pointed out when they talked about the causes of poverty was the sin of others. Some people are in the situation they are because of things that have been done to them. Or because of of systems, of unjust systems or government or structures that have been levied against them. 
And it forces them into this way of living that they had never, that they didn't deserve, that they didn't do anything themselves to get, but they're there. And the, and the hope of judgment, of a final judgment one day, is going to be that following that judgment is a new heaven and a new earth. When there is no more injustice, when there is no more sadness, when there are no more tears, no more sin. But not only is God going to kind of mete out His judgment out in creation, this gets a little scary and it gets a little personal for me. Because I've got stuff in my heart. I've got subtle and sometimes not so subtle prejudices and bits of racism as I'm learning, particularly this last week, in my heart that are not pretty. That are not things that I'm excited about or proud of. And I'm going to tell you, the only way for me to look at this coming judgment of Jesus and to say it's going to be beautiful and not absolutely terrifying is if that sin is no longer counted against me. Is if Jesus Christ has taken that on Himself and died on the cross, which we've already read. But even though I still have sin and it, outwork, it plays out in my life, that God no longer counts that against me. It's been taken from me. And so what happens in that transaction when we're delivered from the old life We're delivered into this new life in Christ Jesus. We're delivered into this this something so much better. Something so much better. Peter holds out this life of rather than being consumed and rather than having a life of of just consuming what's around you. Again, whether substance or money or, or whatever it is, people. There's something better. Peter holds out the good life. Well, rather than being characterized by consuming, you begin to be characterized by giving and giving to one another. Peter holds this out and says, there is a life where the one another becomes the dominant theme. In verse 8, 9, and 10, Peter draws us into this new life in Christ where we live it out with other people. It's life together. In verse 8, he says, you're to love one another earnestly. Think about this. This is in utter contradiction to what has just been held up as the old way. The old way was to live in lust for those around you and to use them for your own fantasies and passions. But to love other people earnestly is to seek their good, is to lay down yourself for them, is to give of yourself for them. A life in Christ frees us to care for other people, not to consume other people. That's not all. In, uh, real quick. Some of us have done or said things. Actually, all of us, all of us have done or said things to other people which we ought not said or have done. That is so obvious it, it doesn't even bear repeating. We have all done things against others or said things. And we have sought to use them for our own good. We need to confess that to people. We need to go toward those people and to love them enough to look and say, you know what? I said something about you the other day with some friends and I shouldn't have said it and I'm sorry. And we need to begin to move in to relationship instead of pulling out of relationship. We need to begin to love others earnestly. And when we do that, people will be changed. You want to see people around you changed? 
go to them and confess to them what you've done wrong to them. And their anger toward you will melt because they don't have anything against you. If you put it out there and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for this? What can they hold against you anymore? And true relationship can happen. You can be brought back in to one another. The relationship can go forward. He goes on in verse 9 and says that we're to show hospitality to one another with a joyful heart. Now, there's a proverb that I hate. It's Proverbs 23, verse 6 and 7. It says this. Um, I, I don't like this at all. It says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. I don't like that proverb because what it says to me, it just puts my heart on display. And what it does to me is it says, Brett, when you have people over to your house for dinner or to hang out or whatever, and they eat your food, or they eat the food that you didn't plan on them eating, or they drink your drink that you didn't plan on them drinking, and I really kind of get to get angry inside, like, no, that's, that's ours. <laughs> that's not yours. When I do that, that's the opposite of what Peter is encouraging me to do here. He's saying being hospitable to one another with a joyful heart. That we're to welcome one another into our homes, into our lives, and share with them what we have. And to, don't keep a ta- and to not keep a tally of what they've taken and to try and go exact revenge or to go, oh yeah, I'll go over to your house and drink your wine, sucker. <laughs> You're saying that's not what we're supposed to do. That's the opposite of a joyful heart. That's a grievous heart. That's a, a stingy heart, the proverb would say. So as God's Spirit works in me, He is freeing me slowly but surely to let me have other people into our home and to just give them what we have. And it's hard because I want to hold on to what I have. But this new life in Christ is drawing me to let go of it and to be hospitable with other people. And in verse 10 and 11, he says that we're to use our God-given gifts to serve one another. Look, if you're in the church, then you may have heard the analogy that the church is Christ's body. And that one person may be a hand, or one person may be a foot, or whatever. But Christ is the head. He is the, the action center. He is where it exists. But we're all, we all have a role in this body. And what Peter's saying here is, look, if you're a Christian, you've got to figure out what your role is. You've got to figure out what you can bring to the table in the church to serve others with. And when you find out what it is, serve. Serve them. If it's teaching, he says in verse 11, if it's preaching, preach as the oracles of God. If it's serving, serve. If it's helping, whatever it is. If you're a Christian, God has given you a gift with which you can help and serve the people around you. If you want to know what it is, ask the people around you. What am I good at? What do you see me uh, thriving in? And use that for the good of those around you. And so Peter, you see, he is taking us from this picture of an old life that is characterized by by consuming the things around you. And this idea of, of being had and this dirtiness of moving through life in that way. And he puts over against it a new life that is offered in Christ. A life that is oriented not toward consuming others but in a life that is oriented away from self and toward others, 
toward giving them and giving to them and serving them. Think about with me the three pastors in Chicago for just a second. And I'll close with this. As I listened to them talk about what they were doing and letting people into their lives and into their homes, again, I was working through my own selfishness and how much I wouldn't actually want to do that. On the other hand, looking and seeing how beautiful that was. Because friends, when that happens, the glory of God is on display. The kindness of Jesus is on display when for no reason... Other than just to care for people, people love and care for them. And that is showing something of the nature of Jesus himself. Who didn't come because he owed you forgiveness, because you were so good. Who didn't come because under compulsion, but who willingly came and became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God and we might be forgiven and made right. See, that's what happens in Christ. So where are you? For some of you, I know that the old life here is your present life. And I simply want to hold out to you Jesus Christ and offer Him to you and say, there is a way to get rid of that lifestyle, of that dirtiness, of that sense of, I'm just in a game that I'm losing perpetually. And the answer is to to give yourself to Jesus. To trust that He offers forgiveness and has achieved that forgiveness. And for many of you in here who are like me, we have this new life in Jesus. We are Christians. We believe all of this. But honestly, we just struggle to care for the people around us. We struggle to do the one another thing well. And in that, I want to invite you to come with me to the throne of Jesus. And to confess that. And to ask Him to heal us. Because at that throne, there is enough grace and mercy for all of us. And Christ is kind and generous to pour it out and give it to us. So whether or not you know Him or whether you have known Him for a long time, come to Him. Be reconciled to Him. And let Him change you from the inside out. Let's pray.